Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to be joined by Janbert Vandenberg. Janbert is a director at Artlink Edinburgh and the Lothians, a non-profit organisation established in 1984 which aims to support and promote the involvement of disabled people within the arts. Um, Jan Burt, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Well, I'm very glad to be there. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well. Um, Usually we'd begin the conversation by diving straight into um, the leadership topic, but considering that we're going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, at this uh, moment with this ongoing COVID-19 situation. I feel we should start there and basically we should go over just to what extent it's affected you and your organisation because I can imagine there have been some tremendous challenges for yourselves. Yes, there have been, been tremendous challenges and, 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 and to a certain extent, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly difficult time to, 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 to the way I live through for, for everyone concerned. And what's been amazing for us and, and our organisation is it actually has, has increased our demand on, on what we do. It has, has enabled us to, to do things and, and, and learn about what we're doing in a different way and, and do things we hadn't done before. Um, and and, and uh, it's opened our eyes to a whole range of new possibilities as well as a whole range of um, ingrained inequalities that we were already aware of, but actually have become starker, as especially as the crisis has has developed as well. So it's been a massive learning experience for us, and 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 it, to some extent, a positive learning experience in in a very difficult time. And what are some of the things that you have learned from adapting to this sort of new way of life? Um. I suppose what we've learned is that um, uh, what we already knew, there are a lot of the people that we work with who are, who are disabled people, people experience disadvantage, people with enduring mental health, um, lead um, difficult lives uh, at the best of times. And uh, the pandemic has, has exacerbated some of those difficulties further. Um, and that's meant um, us having to, in a way, dive deeper to better understand uh, how people live their lives and to better understand how we can engage with that experience and, and better understand what we can offer. And that's meant um, better understanding what an individual's natural support networks are and how we engage with those natural supports as we do with the individual themselves, um, which has been Again, an amazing experience. People are, are in the main great and, 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 and inventive in and of themselves. And then what we are able to, in a way, put into that mix as well is artists who are incredibly adaptive and incredibly imaginative in, in, in how to keep in contact, which was first and foremost really important. And then also to start developing individual but also collective projects. 
It's um, very important that you mentioned there, um, not just, of course, adaptability and flexibility and how important that's been during this time, but also the fact that the pandemic has laid bare some real inequalities uh, within society. We've seen that in the different groups of people that are deemed more vulnerable to the uh, the virus um, in particular. We've seen it with the anti-racism debates that have been raging on throughout the year. Um, but during this time as well, despite that issue there has been a sense of national unity that has come together in the sense that we're all in the same boat with COVID-19 people have been rallying in support of the NHS and clapping on their doorsteps that's something that leaders really can harness to sort of bridge the gap between these inequalities and really sort of push us forward in future isn't it that's something that we really do need to see it- We'd hope so, or I hope so, um, and 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 I think that there 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 kind of been moments within this recent experience over the last six months where where you felt that kind of the, the common experience articulating a different way of thinking, a different way of doing. The, 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 the fear I have is that as we come out of one phase and possibly go into another phase, but that's another story. Um, one reverts back to normal quite quickly and perhaps too quickly. Mm. And, and, and to a certain extent, the experiences, our shared experiences, are put to one side again as, as we try desperately go get to, to get back to a normality. The, the problem with normality for lots of people that we tend to engage with regularly is that that isn't a good normality. That is a, a normality where, where um, the, the, in a way, the, the inequalities that had, have been brought to the fore are, are, in a way, being reverted back to what is normal as well. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of conversations to be had. And the problem we have at the moment is that we're still in the middle of something. We're not at the end of something. Mm. And because we're in the middle of something, we can't quite come to the answers. And that's one with the, 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 the authorities that I tend to work with, public authorities I tend to work with, um, is, is very much the case, is that, that there isn't a recognition things need to be done differently. But how differently and, and what that might look like is, is in a way too difficult to articulate when you're also still dealing with a crisis. Mm. Um, and, and, and that tension uh, hasn't resolved itself yet. We certainly have to hope, don't we, that some of the more positive elements of this lockdown period can become a permanent fixture of the way that we live life in the uh, the UK and indeed the, uh, the wider world um, as well. Shifting focus ever so slightly away from the COVID-19 um, pandemic, if I uh, may, just for um, a moment. Um, I understand that, um, of course, you've been working with um, Artlink for quite some time in its activities, providing opportunities for those who experience disadvantage and disability in the east of Scotland to get involved within the arts. So it's a lot of inspiring work that, of course, you've been doing. But what is it really that actually sort of inspires you in a leadership role? Because a leader's role is about inspiring others. But what is it that inspires inspires the leader? <laughs> Seeing the results of the work very, very clearly, but actually the results of the work are more, it's about understanding uh, the kind of individual um, potential and, 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 and views of the world better, understanding how um, that actually 
allows us to create a different view of, of what is possible and to some extent then leads to um, me being able to better articulate what different should and could look like. So it helps me, it supports me in, in defining what I think the next steps need to be. Um, but those next steps are only there because actually they have been informed by, by people's own view of the world, their own potential. And I think it's their potential that, that so often, to a certain extent, is ignored. Um, and and, and the, the, either way, to focus on, on, on what people aren't capable of is, is pulled to the fore, which, which is depressing after having been in this job for the last 30 years. And just sh- sort of shifting focus away from that, um, given the experience that you've had, not just working with the organisation, but also managing your way through a crisis such as this, if you had to perhaps give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to step into a leadership role within an organisation for the uh, the first time, what sort of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success and really seeing results in the work that they're doing? Um, learn and listen, or listen and learn. I think there's nothing more important than actually um, being able to 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 adapt, um, but but being able to adapt from the point of view of having understood um, what's needed and having understood what 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 people's view of that is. And I, I think it's it's incredibly important to continue not to think that you have the answers, but to think that you can provide a context in which answers can be arrived at. Um, I suppose as I get older, um, that becomes more and more important is actually understanding that you are uh, a cog in a wheel rather than uh, the the central point of of action or decision-making. It's actually you enable other people to, to act and you enable other people to think for themselves and you able uh, enable other people to to do the best that they can but for that to to happen you have to do the best that you can as well it's really reminded us hasn't it this last few months um, that leadership is about constantly learning we've had to be adaptable and flexible learn and think on our feet during this time um, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and think, well, maybe one or two things we could have done a little bit differently. But it's all about the learning curve, isn't it, and embracing that as an opportunity to improve. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's, it's really important to to recognise when when you've kind of could have done things better or differently. It's really 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 important to recognise when you've done things that that um, you shouldn't have done and 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 and, and not done. <laughs> That's the case for me, but it's that kind of thing where you say, "Well, actually, I could have done this a lot, lot better," and 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 uh, acknowledge that um, you don't have the answer to everything, but that if you have people around you who who are also interested and supportive of 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 achieving the same aim, um, then if you don't have the answer, then somebody around you will have. 
Now, unfortunately, Jan, but um, our time on the uh, the programme is drawing to a close this um, afternoon. But just before we do wrap things up, I think it's only right that we talk about the uh, the next 12 months. We know that we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working during this time, continue to adjust to that. Um, but what do you think is next for you and Artlink Edinburgh and the Lothians? And where do you see yourself being in 12 months' time? What do you really hope to achieve? I suppose what we hope to achieve is, is, is what we aim to achieve, which is that it, uh, it continues to build on the potential of the people that we work with um, and, 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 and in a way supports their further agency, um, articulates their voice within what has, um, is going to be a very crowded arena. Um, and then I, I suppose ultimately our, our, wish and our hope is that to a certain extent a greater equality um, will be created out of out of um, this shared experience um, a, a greater appreciation of of I suppose support and and, 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 and appreciation of each other um, which sounds a bit airy fairy but I think it's actually <laughs> our shared humanity is what makes um, what we do is possible and it makes what we do great at points as well. Certainly going to be a very interesting time over the uh, the next few months and I really do wish you all the best um, in your endeavours, Jambert. And I think also it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are coming along and we can discuss where we're at at that point in time as well. Absolutely, it would be great to do. It would be wonderful. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the programme today. And most importantly, until hopefully we do speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that we're going to be on the way out of all of this soon. Absolutely. And thank you. I was speaking on the programme today to Janbert Vandenberg, Director at Artlink Edinburgh and the Lothians. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated in August 2015 to his new role as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency, where he served as an MP for 28 years during a distinguished political career in which he also held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and he managed all of that despite the setback of being blind from birth. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10,000 or 25,000. All, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.